Easter looks vastly different this year than we thought, right? I doubt any of you some six, eight weeks ago anticipated this is what Easter would be 2020, right? You know, in the past, when we think about Easter, if we were to flash back six or eight weeks and think about what Easter was going to be, we would think instinctively, I know I did, uh, in preparation for Easter, think about Easter's we've experienced before. I can remember as a kid, uh, growing up and going, we would go to, to Easter service. Uh, my dad was a minister, so we would go to church, um, have the service, do uh, uh, Sunday school, and then we'd go to lunch. And now what we would do is, is a bunch of us there in town, uh, friends, fr- you know, family friends, we would all gather at somebody's house, and we would have Easter lunch. And it was a huge spread. I mean, it was turkey and ham and uh, uh, fresh rolls and uh, macaroni and cheese and deviled eggs. And uh, my favorite, though, we had this this uh, couple who came and uh, the wife, she would always bring pot stickers. And I loved them. I loved them. I would always eat like 15. That was my favorite thing. And so when I think Easter food, for some reason, that's what pops into my head because of my childhood. Uh, but we would have all that food, and then we would do um, an egg hunt in the backyard for the little kids, and then we would all take pictures, you know, all the kids, then each individual family, and we would try to take pictures of everybody. And then as I got older, I got married and started having kids of our own. Our Easter was with family, um, or, you know, it was just our individual uh, immediate family. We would uh, come to church. We would have a picture, you know, out in the lobby here at the church. We would set up a little photo booth area and with a camera, and we would have a family picture. Then we would try to take another picture outside here or at our house because inevitably one of them would, you know, mess up. And so we'd want to get a good picture because we all got good Easter clothes, right? That's what we would do is we would go and we would get Easter clothes uh, in some, you know, pastel color like uh, blue, like bright blue or white or uh, 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 yellow or, or pink or something like that, and we would all coordinate and match, and we want to look good for the picture, and we try to get a good Easter picture. Uh, but this year, things are different, right? Things are not the same. It is, uh, this is, it's an empty room, right? I'm, I'm preaching to an empty room. It's not, it's not the same as it is before, but that doesn't mean that the celebration is any different. Just because the, the expectation of the day has changed and the reality doesn't match the expectation, that doesn't mean that the worship or the celebration has to be any different. Because those things aren't reliant upon the externals of tradition or experience or expectation. What we're going to see today is... An Easter that did not quite meet expectations. The Easter day, the day of Easter being vastly different from what was expected. The reality of the day was a difficult one in the moment that changed dramatically. And we're going to observe this from one individual's perspective, Mary Magdalene. We're going to go on a journey with her from everything we know about her in Scripture and see through her eyes what Easter Sunday looked like, all right? So we're going to start in Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8. 
it, you can you can open your Bible. The, the scripture will also be right here at the bottom of the uh, uh, screen, or you can check the description below. It'll all be there for you as well. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. That's the twelve disciples. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. So this is the first glimpse we get of Mary Magdalene. She's a disciple of Jesus. She's a follower of Jesus. Now it says that she had had seven demons, seven demons that had gone out, and she was Magdalene. She was from Magdala. Magdala was a city. So Mary Magdalene, Magdalene isn't her last name. It's where she's from. She's from a city, uh, a place, an area called Magdala. Uh, And she had been suffering at the hands of these seven demons. And then along comes Jesus, and Jesus sets her free. Now, we don't get a glimpse in Scripture of what that exact moment looked like. All we see is this reference to it here, that Mary Magdalene was a woman from Magdala who had been freed from seven demons by Jesus, and then she followed Jesus, and seemingly, from what we can tell, became a dedicated disciple of Jesus. She, she gave faithfully to support his ministry. If you look there in verse 3 of Luke chapter 8, they provided for them out of their means. They gave financially to support his ministry. So understanding the level to which uh, she had received from Jesus, she then gave to Jesus. She freely gave. Now we see Mary Magdalene in two other places. One, we're going to look at right now in John chapter 19. We see Mary Magdalene at the crucifixion, at Jesus' death, at Jesus' execution. She's there at the crucifixion. She's at the cross. There's a couple of people there. In John chapter 19, verse 25, John writes, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So she's at the crucifixion. She's there. She's one of the faithful few. Alongside Jesus' mother, his aunt, this woman named Mary, this other woman named Mary who's married to a guy named Clopas, and Mary Magdalene is there, but we also know from later on in the book of John that John the Apostle is there. Everybody else fled. All the other disciples, all the other apostles, all the myriad of followers were not there. It was just these. And they're there, and Mary Magdalene's one of those. She's at the crucifixion. She's so dedicated and so faithful that she does not fear the retribution of anybody seeing her dedication to Jesus, that she's there at his execution, at his crucifixion, watching him die. Look at uh, John chapter 20 now. This is going to be the the heart of it. This is our source text for the rest of the message. This is where we're going to set up camp here. You see, Jesus is crucified. He dies. He dies there on the cross. You know, his mother, uh, his aunt, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and John the Apostle are all there. They see this happen. Well, there was a, a... very influential, very powerful, very wealthy man who was a follower of Jesus, uh, who was politically savvy. He was able to use his connections 
uh, and quite possibly some of his financial means to get the uh, authorities to let him take the body of Jesus and bury it. So he took the body of Jesus after it had been crucified and and after Jesus had died. He took the body of Jesus and he put it in a tomb that was nearby. They rolled a stone in front of the tomb. Uh, and they, that took place on Friday evening. Now, this was all a rush. This was all in a hurry. You see, because Jesus died on a Friday, and the Jewish Sabbath started Friday night at sundown. And they weren't allowed to do any work once the Sabbath hit. And so they had to, Jesus died on, on, on Friday afternoon. They had to get Jesus off of the cross into the tomb before Sabbath started, or they would not be able to, to worship like they were required to on the Sabbath. And so they had to get all this done. So they did it quickly. They took Jesus down. Uh, uh, the, the, the rich guy went to the authorities, got the body, put it in the tomb, rolled the stone, and then they all went to worship on Sabbath. So Friday, day one. Saturday, day two. Sunday, day three comes. They had not been able to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So some of his disciples, women, some of his female disciples, were going to go to the tomb, and now that the Sabbath was over, were going to finish, they were going to finish what they were supposed to do on Friday and prepare the body for burial. And Mary Magdalene was one of those. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now this is fascinating to me. So they go to the tomb. Mary Magdalene sees that stones rolled away. There's no body inside the tomb. Her first instinct is to run to the disciples and tell them what she's found. And so she runs to the disciples, runs as fast as she can. She gets there and says, Jesus' body's not there. And so John, who is described here as the other disciple, and Simon Peter, they, they hear Mary Magdalene's words, and they run to the tomb. I mean, just full out run. They sprint. Mary Magdalene goes with them. She's trying to keep up. And so they get to the tomb, and Peter looks, and John looks, see nobody, and they leave and go home. But Mary Magdalene doesn't go home. Peter and John leave. They, 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 they observe what's there. Nothing is there. And they leave and go home. Mary Magdalene stays. She stays at the tomb. Uh, Verse 11. So Mary, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So Mary is standing there weeping. Now this word for weeping, I mean, the word for weeping there is, is very, it emphasizes the noise that she's making. It is a very loud, very intense noise with her crying. And she's weeping over the tomb. She's standing beside the tomb weeping. And it says, as she wept, as she wept, she stooped down because it's a low uh, opening, and she looks in. And so she went there, and she looks in there. In her grief, in her fear, her fear that Jesus' body had been stolen. And that was one of the the, uh, greatest violations for a first century Jew was the desecration of a grave and of a person's body. And so she was afraid that someone had stolen Jesus' body and violated it by removing it from the tomb. And so she's weeping here at this moment. But the irony is 
that his body had not been violated by removing, by being removed from the tomb. His body had been glorified by its removal from the tomb. Look at verse 12. So Mary looks in the tomb, Mary Magdalene, and she saw two angels in white standing where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So she looks into the tomb, and she sees two angels. One, There's a slab there that the body had been laid on, and there's one angel at the top of the slab, and there's one angel at the bottom of the slab. And so she sees two angels. And this is amazing. She sees two angels in the tomb. Verse 13, and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, if you've read much of Scripture, maybe you haven't, and that's totally fine. But when angels come on the scene, what they typically say when they show up, because it's a shocking arrival, that it's scary to people. So the angels will typically say, do not be afraid, or do not fear, or fear not. But these angels don't say that. They don't say that here. Almost every other time angels show up, that's what they say, because it's such an overwhelming thing to see an angel standing there. But these guys don't say that. They just address her and say, why are you weeping? Mary gives no acknowledgement of who they are. Now, it's obvious from the description here, it it would be obvious to her that these are angels. It would be obvious to her that these are angels, at least from what we can gather from what's written here. But she does not acknowledge that they are. An awareness, but does not acknowledge that they are. She's so focused on, on her present concern that honestly, she misses the answer that's right in front of her. Angels in the tomb must mean something supernatural has happened. If they go to the tomb, stones rolled away, you look in, and there's angels there. I mean, just by deduction, something supernatural has occurred. But it doesn't click in her mind because she's so focused on what she's focused on. Jesus' body is missing, and then she's come to the conclusion, made an assumption, Somebody stole his body, and she's not willing to, to uh, accept any other possibility. And she misses what's there because she's not aware of, of what's really happening. Her eyes were not open, metaphorically, because open eyes see everything that God puts in front of you. Open eyes see everything that God puts in front of you. And now we look at Mary and we say, how can you look in the tomb and see two angels and not come to the conclusion that quite possibly something different has happened than what I'm thinking has happened? We can look down at Mary because she didn't think or care about these angels who were there. But in reality, don't you do this all the time? I know I do this all the time. I get so hung up on on one possibility that I don't take a moment, a breather, and listen to what God could be doing in the moment. You know, I do this when, even when I'm looking for something in my house that's lost. You know, for instance, I don't know if this ever happens at your house. Maybe you've got some little people at your house like I have at my house. And uh, the, your TV remote may go missing, as ours 
has often done. And it, it used to, it would drive me nuts, right? I mean, it's, it's just a little, I mean, the remotes, I mean, it's a little bitty. It's like that big, like that, that, it's a little bitty deal. And uh, it would go missing all the time. And so I finally said, okay, this up here on the counter, this is the, this is the home for the remote. You use the remote, you put it back in its home. Somebody would say, I'd come home for lunch. And the kids would say, we can't find the remote. And I said, well, is it in its home? No, <laughs> it's not. Somebody's taking it. We'll find it in a bedroom or we'll find it under clothes, find it in a drawer, find it uh, in the couch, uh, find it on the counter under diapers, find it wh wherever, find it in, uh, uh, you know, swapped out with the remote in the from the other room. <laughs> um, you know, I can remember a time just turning, almost turning the couch over. I mean, looking under the couch for the remote, you know, pulling all the cushions off of the couch. Maybe, have you ever done that? Pulled all the cushions off of the couch, trying to search, seeing if it's slipped down in the in-between of the couch. And I put all the cushions back, and I search for another five, ten minutes, can't find the thing. And then one more time, I go over, and I just slip my hand down into the couch, and there it is. I had pulled all the cushions out and didn't see it because I was so wrapped up and being frustrated not finding the remote that I didn't see what was right in front of me. So my wife did the most amazing thing. A few, a couple months ago, uh, she got me a present. It's these, these little bitty uh, devices. I mean, like, like maybe that big and, uh, I mean, like paper thin almost that have a little um, sticky on the back. And you stick it on stuff, and it connects to an app on your phone. And you can push a button in the app, and it makes that little device start beeping so you can hear if something's lost. You can find it. Uh, and so the first thing I did was I slapped one of those on the remote. <laughs> I popped one of those deals on the remote. And now we've had this for like a month or so, uh, six weeks, and I've used it multiple times uh, in that period trying to find it uh, because what I had to do was I had to use more senses in order to be able to find it. I couldn't just rely on one sense, my, my sense of sight, because I, I would get so caught up in the moment that I wouldn't realize what was right in front of me. And so now having the opportunity to use another sense, my ears, and hear this thing beeping at me, I can find it. Because I've got to take a pause, I've got to open the app, I've got to click the button, and in the pause... And the usefulness of more than one of my senses, I'm able to see better. And so Mary isn't quite there yet here. She doesn't see what's right in front of her. Two angels there in the tomb on the place Jesus' body was laid, having rolled the stone away. She doesn't see what is right in front of her. And she tells these guys, somebody's taking Jesus' body. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. So she sees Jesus standing there. Look at what it says, though. But she did not know that it was Jesus. She saw Jesus but didn't see Jesus. She didn't recognize him, didn't realize what she was seeing. She had already drawn a conclusion and didn't see what was right in front of her. Verse 15, Jesus speaks to her. More than one sense there. She used her eyes. It didn't work. Now she's about to hear with her ears. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She made another assumption. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, 
tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she supposes that this, this is the only conclusion she can come to. Who else would be in a garden in the very early part of the morning? Only the gardener. That's the only thing she can think of. If you've taken him away, tell me. So I can take him because she wants to take Jesus' body. She wants to, to get it ready for burial and put it back where she thinks it should go. But Jesus says something. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So she saw Jesus but didn't recognize him. Because there's a difference between seeing Jesus and recognizing Jesus. You can see him and recognize that it is him, but to recognize him, you must first see him. How often do we go about a day and don't recognize Jesus' hand and involvement in our lives in everything we do, from his presence to his provision to his protection? How often do we go through a day? I mean, I, know, I do it all the time. Go through a day so busy, so caught up, that I'm not aware that he is there with me throughout the entire journey. She recognizes him finally. But I want to focus on one word here. It's in verse 15. That word supposing. Supposing him to be the gardener. She supposes that he's the gardener. That word means to regard something as true without certainty. To assume, to imagine, to think it's possible it could be real. See, Mary assumed Jesus was dead. She assumed Jesus' body had been stolen. She assumed that Jesus himself was the gardener and not the creator. Assumption could have totally messed up her experience there in the moment. Because that's what assumption does. Assumption can ruin opportunity. Assumption can, can, can ruin opportunity. Assumption misses opportunity. When opportunity presents itself, if we have already made an assumption and drawn a conclusion about the situation, not realizing the truth, we can miss what God has placed right in front of us. And Mary Magdalene almost misses this opportunity that God has put right there, that Jesus presented to her because she made an assumption that this was the gardener when in fact it was her creator, when in fact it was her Messiah. It was her Savior. But Jesus intervened. He didn't let her sit there in her assumption. Jesus intervened, which really is the story of my life. I ruin things all the time, and then Jesus intervenes. I mess something up, and then Jesus intervenes. And Jesus intervenes out of love. Jesus intervenes out of purpose. Jesus' intervention points me to purpose. His intervention points me to purpose. And if you really think about it, Jesus' death and resurrection are the ultimate intervention. We were, as humanity, lost in our sin, on the way towards death and punishment. And Jesus came and he died for our sins, to pay for our sins so that we can receive forgiveness from God. And then he rose from the dead so that we can experience life after death. And that affords us the intervention and eternal life. He intervened on our behalf. And so Mary hears this from Jesus. Jesus' intervention there, saying her name, calling her out, choosing her in the moment, and she dives in worship towards him. But look at what he says in verse 17. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he had, and that he had said these things to her. And so Jesus is there in the garden. Mary is there. And Jesus isn't saying, don't worship me. Don't, you know, don't ever touch me. He said in the moment, it's as though he's saying to her, don't stop right now and do this because I've still got something for you to do. There is a time for that, but right now I have something for you to do. I have a mission to send you on. I have a job for you to do, a responsibility for you to take care of. She has to take the message of of resurrection and her personal encounter, and she has to go and tell people. You see, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus sends her with the message of the gospel to tell that message to the apostles. Jesus sends Mary Magdalene to preach the gospel to the future preachers of the gospel. Mary Magdalene is the first gospel preacher in history. And Jesus sent her out. Jesus chose her. And and I see that and I hear that. And the question that pops into my mind, why did Jesus pick her to be the first one? Why did Jesus pick her to be the first one to take the gospel message. You know, Mary wasn't picked for her past. I mean, her past was being possessed by seven demons. She wasn't picked for her past. She was, wasn't picked for her ability. We don't know anything about her skill set. We don't know anything about her giftedness. She wasn't picked for her following. She didn't have one and a half million Instagram followers. We don't know anything about her following. She was a follower of Jesus. She wasn't picked for any of that. In fact, the disciples themselves, when Mary goes and tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead, right after this encounter, she goes and tells them that Jesus has risen from the dead. Luke chapter 24, verse 11 tells us that that they don't listen to her. They think she's making it all up. They don't think she's telling the truth. They don't believe her at all. And so Jesus chose her even though all of that stuff was there. Scripture doesn't straight out, uh, you know, say why Jesus chose her in this way, but I think we can glean from Scripture part of the truth. If you look back up in verses 1 and 2 here of John chapter 20, we see what Mary did, Mary Magdalene. She came to the tomb. She saw that it was empty. She reported she reported that Jesus' body was not where it should be. She encounters this thing that's related to Jesus, Jesus not being in his tomb, his body not being in his tomb. She encounters this thing that's related to Jesus, and her first gut reaction is to jump up and tell somebody. Her, her instinct was to go and tell people. This was her habit. This became who she was. She had to get up. She had to go tell people. She encountered something with Jesus, and she had this, this, this habit that it developed within her to tell people about something uh, that concerned Jesus. And, and it, this habit formed her usefulness. Her habit formed her usefulness. And it's the same for us. You know, my habits shape my usefulness for Jesus. However... 
my habits are, they shape whether I am more useful or less useful. My habits shape my usefulness for Jesus. You see, because I want to show you, I want to show you something else. It's a, it's a verse we didn't read. But back up in verse 8, you see, Mary's habit was to go and tell people about what she encountered with Jesus. Look at verse 8. Here we have Peter and John. Peter and John, leaders of the future leaders of the church. Peter's going to lead the charge in the book of Acts. John is going to be the last apostle alive, having the revelation, writing the gospel that we're reading right here, writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These guys run to the tomb, see that it's empty. John even writes in verse 8, he says that he believed. He believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And so in his belief, what did Peter and John do? Did they run off and tell people? No. They went home. They went home. Peter and John, these great guys doing miracles in the book of Acts, they went home. They see, John says that he believes Jesus rose from the dead, and he didn't go until he went home. Mary, on the other hand, went and told people. Mary went and told people. She was a willing participant. She was rescued by Jesus. She followed Jesus. She supported Jesus' ministry. And then she she willingly participated in Jesus' purpose. Notice, though, that her purpose, when Jesus told her, go and tell the disciples that I've risen from the dead, tell the disciples your experience, uh, her purpose in telling them was to point the disciples to Jesus. It was not to tell the disciples what they should be doing. That was for Jesus to do. Mary, didn't. she was not instructed by Jesus to go to the disciples and say, hey, disciples, you messed it up. You should have gone and told people when you saw the tomb was empty. You should have gone over here and told people. You should have gone over there and told people. You should have come back and seen, and you would have seen the angels that were there. You would have seen Jesus himself if you had come and done this. You should have done this, and you should have done this, and you should have done this. She wasn't sent there to do a list of you should haves. She was sent there, sent there to point to Jesus and let Jesus take care of the instruction. But how often do we not do that? I know I tend to, at least in my mind, think, well, man, they should have done that. If I would have been in their situation, I would have done this. And and we try to uh, uh, speak to someone else's experience even though we're not in their experience. But Mary Magdalene didn't do that. Her message from Jesus was simply, go and tell them about me. Tell them what you have experienced here in hearing me. And then Jesus would show up and he would take care of the rest. Her purpose was to point to Jesus. And Jesus <laughs> chose her to change the world. Jesus chose her to change the world, to bring the gospel message to his apostles, to his disciples. Jesus chose her, even though her past said no. Her past was one of seven demons. Her past was one that did not say, hey, here, I'm going to train you up to go out and tell people. Her past said no. Jesus chose her even though culture said no. She was a woman in the first century. People would not have listened to her. That may be the very reason the disciples themselves refused to believe her. So, Jesus chose her even though her past said no. Jesus chose her even though culture said no. Jesus chose her even though those disciples said no. 
the people who were followers of Jesus, the people who were close-knit to Jesus, the people who were supposed to be believers, who were supposed to know the most and be the most, even though the Christians said no, Jesus chose her. Jesus chose her. So know this. Know this. Even when you are alone and surrounded by rejection, Jesus chose you. Jesus chose you. Even if your past says no. Even uh, if culture says no. Even if your education says no. Even if your finances say no. Even if the Christians look at you and say no, Jesus chose you. Jesus chose you. Jesus chose you. Will you choose Jesus? Will you choose Jesus? We all have the opportunity. This is your moment. Will you choose Jesus now? Choose him. Believe in him. Not just head knowledge. Not just, oh, yeah, Jesus was some guy in history I know about, you know, because of history. And I've heard about this Jesus. But do you know him in your heart? Now is your moment to choose Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Right now, this very second, that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. All of them. Even the ones you haven't done yet. He died so they would all be forgiven by God. And then he, he rose from the dead, which is what we celebrate on Easter. He rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. Will you choose Jesus today? If you want to make a decision for Jesus today, right below me in the, in the description, there's either, depending on where you're watching, there's a link or there's a, there's a button there that says, I made a decision. Click on that button and tell us about your decision. Maybe you want to tell us about a story of what Jesus is doing in your life right now, how he has intervened in your life right now. Well, again, there's a link or a button there that says, tell my story. You can tell your story, and we can all celebrate together of how Jesus has been involved in your life and all that he's done for you. Jesus has done, maybe you want to do both. You are deciding right now to follow Jesus, to be a believer in Jesus, to be saved by Jesus. You can uh, click both buttons, make a decision, and tell us your story, and do it there, and celebrate. Right now is your moment to choose Jesus. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Choose Jesus now, because he chose you.